Hello, everyone. We're here for another edition of Lit Chat. I am Bonnie. And this is PJ. And today we are going to discuss our individual reads. Uh, we're sorry we missed last month, but, you know, life gets in the way. So we will discuss our group read as well as some of the books that we read on our own. Do we start with the group read or do we start with our own individual? Let's start with the group read since that's what we were supposed to do last month. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> so the group read was The Extraordinary Deaths, Deaths of Mrs. Of Kip. Kip. And it's by Sarah Brunsfeld. It is an inspirational fiction book, but it doesn't slap you in the face with religion. Yes. And quite honestly, this is us stepping out of our comfort zone because we often do not read inspirational um, novels in a group setting. Right. Because you're so afraid of stepping on toes. Yes. But this, like I said, this does not slap you in the face with religion. Yes, there is Bible reading. This woman, Miss Mrs. Kip, is an extremely devout Christian woman. But she came into her Christianity very late in her life. When you consider when that most people start at either babies or very young ages. Yeah. Um, she did not convert to really, well, I wouldn't say she convert. I mean, she was a nice person always. Yes. It's just that she never did the traditional join a church type thing until later and after her husband's death. Yes. And a friend of hers got her more and more involved in a church setting to help her get past her husband's death. And in so doing, she found her niche. She just helped people. Yes. She didn't overpower them with saying, you know, you have to do this and you have to. She just helped people. No, and this is what I like about the character. I mean, when we held our lit chat in person, everybody agreed that Mrs. Kip was one of the greatest characters that we've read in a mm -hmm. while. It comes natural. It's not forced, as you said. It's natural. She's not forcing her religion or her views on anyone. Her demeanor and how she talks naturally brings in her religious beliefs. And it's nice. We have Mrs. Kip. She has cancer. Let's just say it right out. She's dying of stomach cancer. She enters into a hospice. It's one of those that you don't see a lot about on the news. <laughs> I mean, this supposedly is a very well-run, very clean, very organized, very well-staffed institution. Yeah. And it has all the amenities for someone who is literally dying, who has come there to die, which is what these people are there for. They are there for their end-of-life care. But Mrs. Kip doesn't want to give in just yet. <laughs> no, she's a fighter, and I greatly appreciate that because, you know, during our group chat, we were talking about how there's different perspectives when it comes to how you deal with this news. Some people are willing to just kind of give up and stop living because they know, well, what's the point? And then there's other people who think, well, I've got some time left. Let's embrace it for all that I can. 
And Miss Kip, she is the type of person that's let's embrace it. Let's go out with a bang. Yes. I mean, she didn't want to follow the rules. They had rules that if she went anywhere, she was technically supposed to go in a wheelchair. But she walked. And of course, she tired extremely easily. So even though it was what we would consider a short distance, yeah, she was flagging very quickly in these walks and got herself into some trouble certain times when she did this. But always managed to come through. Well, you know, it, it's a thing of independence, right? I think that when you get to that point, and this was another thing that we talked about in the Lit Chat group, when you get to that point, it's hard as an adult who's lived so long to be told you cannot do this, you cannot do that. It's almost like you're reverting back to like being a child with people telling you what you can and cannot do. I can understand that being extremely difficult, especially when it's people that are younger than you Mm -hmm. and who have lived uh, less time than you. So I think that Mrs. Kip is not trying to... It's not that she breaks the rules for the wrong reasons. She just wants to go outside to the gazebo and there's nobody around at the time. And I think also it's one of those things where she is the type of person that she doesn't want to inconvenience people. She feels like, I can do this, why inconvenience people when I can, it's a short distance and I can walk. Yeah. So then Mrs. Kip wrote journals from the time that she started her religious journey when she went into therapy to try to get some help after her husband's death. And she continued writing journals forever after that. And so she had stories in her journals. And so when she came into the hospice, for whatever reason, these two office paper boxes of journals were brought with her. Well, it it was the things that she decided to keep from her life at home. And one of the nurses happened to open one of the boxes and see this newspaper clipping of Mrs. Kip with another lady, Mai. And she goes... Mrs. Kip, that was you? So apparently this was a story that town knew well. Mm -hmm. This was a little town. So this nurse happened to know the editor at the local paper. And so she mentioned it to her. Now we have Aiden. Aiden is a very young, she wants to be a newspaper reporter. And she's got this job on the newspaper but she's getting all the, like, not very important jobs to do. So we are introduced to Aiden when she is supposedly writing an email to the managing editor of the paper saying, hey, give me some stories to do. And she's not sure she wants to send it. And her girlfriend hits the send button. Well, and I should say, she's not sending this to her direct boss. She is sending this to her direct boss's boss. So she's kind of sidestepping. Right. She's going overheads. Yes. And needless to say, it does get her into trouble with both managing editor and editor. There is another person in the bullpen at the newspaper that is very outgoing and very ambitious and is constantly getting the good stories. And Aiden thinks she wants to be like her, but in reality, she doesn't. That's not who she is. Woods is the editor, and she has this story about 
about Mrs. Kipp. And supposedly writing obituaries is like the bottom of the newspaper reporter's things to do. And she tasks Aiden with writing Mrs. Kipp's obituary. All right, so that's basically the plot line. I do want to get into the conversation that we had with Lit Chat, what they thought of the book. We all seem to agree, like I said, that Mrs. Kipp is one of the best characters that we've actually yes. read in a while. We all wanted her to be real so we could meet her. <laughs> I think we would all... Yeah. She's one of those characters that we wish was real and that we could be friends with. We did, as Bonnie mentioned, we were... A little worried about how each of our, and it wasn't just us, but how people would react to the fact that this was a completely different genre that we're used to. It's not a genre that gets picked often. And it hasn't been picked since I've been here. So I feel like this is the first one since I've been here. But you know, everybody was very pleasantly surprised by this book. They genuinely liked it. I have to admit, I thought it was a little bit slow at the beginning. And that's when she's introducing the characters and getting the plot going. But once she gets the plot going, it moves right along. We are also very surprised because this takes place within a, like, in a week. Yes, the whole story is like a week long. Mrs. Kip dies within a week of her going into the hospice. Our Lit Chat group agreed that there was some great lessons to be learned in this book. Some sayings that Miss Mrs. Kip lived by. Some of our Lit Chat members were so, I guess, not impressed, but they just, you know, it resonated with them that they wrote it down. I would say this is the book from all the other group readings that we've had, where we've all kind of had the same consensus that it was a good book. And yes. we were, I don't know, it just really opened up our eyes to maybe the idea of trying different genres. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes we get stuck in the same genre, and I'm guilty of it. We could be missing out on great books like this one because it's not the genre that we would normally pick. Right. Is there anything else that you remember from the Lit Chat group? Not really, other than that it's a book that you should read. Like I said, it doesn't slap you in the face with religion. So don't think that just by reading this book, somebody is going to be trying to convert you. This is a story of Mrs. Kipp's life and how her life affected and helped other people, especially Aiden in the last week of her life who learned that it isn't necessarily the quote-unquote big story that's the best story. Yeah. And I just I think that's where you need to leave it. And I think it's (laughs) I think it's nice because I feel like this is one of those books where you do take a lesson from life. It's a one of those books that has a positive message. For me I could put myself in Aiden's shoes but also recognize the importance of the wisdom of people that are older than you. They've lived their lives longer. They've gone through more. Been there, done that. And exactly. And they do know things, whether you want to admit it or not. Older people do know things. <laughs> hey, look, I, when I got out of college, I flat out told my mom, you know what, mom? I realize now that you're always right. <laughs> and my mom being modest was like I'm not always right and I'm like well 
let's face it, you're mostly right. I love that too, because I feel like sometimes, you know, younger generations can be so quick to dismiss older generations. And there's a lot of knowledge there that could be tapped, especially when it comes to just life lessons. Yes. That was my takeaway about this book. Or no, not my takeaway, my reinforcement. Because I've always known that older people are wiser because they've lived longer and they've been there and done that. So that was just kind of also nice. I kind of almost feel like this book was kind of like, in a way, kind of a self-help book. It could be a self-help book if you choose to take that away with you. I did, so I I feel kind of like, okay, self-help. And yes, I think that the mood of it is obviously a bit sad. The ending's sad because, you know... But they don't dwell on that part. It's a sad story. I mean, the woman is in hospice. She's dying. Yeah. That's not the basis. It It's her happiness that is more the story. Her lust for life, if you will. Yeah, so that I... That is, it's more the story. And I would say, if you're hesitant about reading this book because you think... Oh, It's about death. It's going to be sad. The ending is sad, but I think everything before the ending is just joyful. And it has its moments where you actually laugh because, you know, you're sitting here going, did she really do that? Yes. So I I would strongly suggest if this is not the book that you would usually read, but you want to venture out, this is the book to venture out on. We're now going to go into our reader's choices. Well, I didn't read as much as I normally do. And part of that was because I was on vacation during this time. I have this book, and this is the book that I got from the library for my summer reading. Yes. During the summer reading program. And it was my free book. And it's titled, When No One is Watching, by Alyssa Cole. Now, it is purported to be a thriller. I wrote in my note, thriller, question mark, question mark. Oh, what does that mean? Because, to tell you the truth, I didn't find it that thrilling. To be called a thriller, I expected to be on the edge of my seat for the entire book, right? Yeah. I could barely climb out of my seat for the entire book. It just, to me, it slogged. Oh, that's unfortunate. And the title, When No One Is Watching, it seems that someone was always watching. And that is evidenced by the fact of certain things that happened. Now, to give you some background, this book takes place in a part of Brooklyn, New York. Okay. Called Gifford Place. It's basically a block or two in Brooklyn. You know how in center cities they have little communities. Yes. Houston has a lot of those. Mm -hmm. And Sydney is a young black woman. She grew up in Gifford Place and of course wanted more for her life. She meets a young man. She moves off to Seattle. She gets married. He doesn't treat her well. And to put it bluntly, he has her put into an insane asylum. Oh. Wow. He doesn't he doesn't physically abuse her. He meant he so mentally abuses this girl that he literally has her committed to an insane asylum. And she talks occasionally about how she was tied down in the asylum. 
but she eventually managed to get out, so she goes back home to Brooklyn and moves back in with her mother in the house that they grew up in. But the community is changing because the city is into gentrification. Okay. Now, there is a very old building. It used to be a hospital, and it sits at the edge of the community. It's all, you know, enclosed in fences and stuff because it's literally falling apart. Yeah, it's it's vacant. It's vacant. But now there is a company called Verentech who wants to come in. They are a quote-unquote research company. We don't really know for sure at this point what they're researching. And they want to take over this building, okay, and open their company here in Brooklyn. And, of course, the city is all for it because more tech stuff. It's going to make money. And now here's, I guess here's where the quote-unquote thriller part comes in. All of a sudden, the neighborhood people start disappearing. Okay. But there's, like, the lady across the street from Sydney. Supposedly, she got sick and moved in with family. So her house was put up for sale. So there's stories covering these disappearances. Yes. These people are, quote, unquote, moving out or selling their houses because they got good deals or something. I smell lies. Yes. Well, (laughs) and there was a young couple, unmarried couple, Mm-hmm. And we must note, this is a predominantly black but minority neighborhood. There are other minorities here as well okay. that are in this community. Predominantly black, but there's some Asian and some Spanish. Mediterranean, okay. some Spanish. You know, it, it, it's a very mixed neighborhood, but mainly minority mixed neighborhood. Okay. So everybody who is buying the houses that are for sale are white, upper middle class people. Okay. So, obviously, gentrification. And this is changing the community. Theo is the young man who moves in across the street with his girlfriend. And they actually go, there was a street tour that someone was giving, basically introduced the white people to the neighborhood. Okay. (laughs) It was designed for not the people who lived there. Okay. This tour of the neighborhood was designed for people who might be interested in mm-hmm. living in this neighborhood. But they weren't talking about the history of the neighborhood. They were talking about the way things could be, not the way things were. Okay. Or any of the history. So Sydney just happened to be on this particular tour. She had nothing else to do this particular day. And so when the young tour guide brings up something, she starts asking questions. Well, didn't you know the lady that lived here, you know, was a very prominent person in history or something? Mm. And she would bring it. And the tour guide is like trying to gloss it over and say, well, that's not part of my tour. But Theo took note. So now there is an older man that lives next door to Sydney. Mm -hmm. Mr. Perkins is, they call him the neighbor. Okay. The, I'm, I'm sorry, they call him the mayor because he can't really get out on his own. So everybody ends up coming to his house for meetings and stuff and everything. And they're planning a block party for the end of the week or something. So Theo wants to be part of the neighborhood. So he kind of comes and introduces himself to this block party, to this group. And they kind of accept him. Well, Sydney was going to make her own walking tour. To introduce people to the real history of Gifford Place. 
And she had a, a young man who was supposedly helping her in research, but all of a sudden he's disappeared. Okay. So Theo volunteers to step in and be her research assistant. And so she's like, she's not sure she really wants to have this white boy helping her with black history, but okay, fine. So in their research and everything, they find some very interesting facts about the old Dutch West East India Trading Company, Dutch, you know, yeah, that original... Yeah, slave trade. Yeah, that uh, originally settled in New York. Mm-hmm, yeah. The guy who the Dutch originally sent over here to find out what was going on, and his comment was, there's nobody here, but we can kill everybody who is. Meaning, he was basically saying, well, there's indigenous people here, but they don't matter, so we can just get rid of them. All right, okay. I'm going to ask you to stop telling the plot because I almost start getting an idea of what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, that's that's sort of kind of exactly where the book goes. Okay. And it does take a thriller twist at the end, but you kind of expect it. So I didn't actually find it as thrilling as yeah. they wanted to make it sound. It was an interesting book. But it was predictable also. It was predictable. It was a little slow. People disappearing, houses being sold. The police are bought off. The city officials are bought off. And of course, Sydney is one of those that they're trying to get rid of. And Theo realizes it. So now he is trying to help save her life. So that's where I'm going to leave it. It's interesting to see how history repeats itself and where they end in the book. Mm -hmm. Is that... It's not only happening in Brooklyn. It was kind of like a Jordan Peele movie. Kind of like Get Out. Actually, they say Rear Window meets Get Out in this gripping thriller ah! from a critically acclaimed <laughs> notable author. author. Now, I don't know what Get Out is. Oh, Get Out is a psychological thriller that basically has to do with race relations. It is... It's very, I mean, it, it's one of the book, one of the movies that I really, really liked. It's just that smart commentary slash psychological thriller, which is what I absolutely like. Don't I think like, she could have done a better job with the thriller part. Yeah. It just, to me, it just didn't grab me. Well, I mean, I don't see but how anything that is predictable will grab you. There wasn't enough unpredictability in it. Yeah. A few more twists and turns. It was very... Okay, I see exactly where this is going. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and talk about the book that I read. Um, it is The God of Endings by Jacqueline Holland. I picked up this book because it was a new book, and I was very intrigued by the cover of it. I was also intrigued by the title of it, The God of Endings. I don't know how that's not intriguing. And then, of course, reading the back of it, once I found out that it was basically a vampire novel... I was intrigued by it. The main character is Colette. It starts off with her as a child in the 1830s. I can't remember. I don't know if it's typhoid, but basically she is living with her family. Her mother and baby sister have died. So now it's her father, who is a gravestone maker or coffin maker. I can't quite remember, but he's has Colette and then Colette's brother. Well, they end up falling all ill, and then the father ends up dying, as does 
the brother. But before the father dies, he writes a letter to her grandmother that she's never known about. And the grandmother has married another man. So she has a, like a step-grandfather. And so before he dies, he ends up writing to them. And so right before she's able to die, the grandfather comes and decides to take her away. What is interesting is that already at the beginning of the book, it gives you hints that this is going to be a vampire. Because it talks about how back then people were so afraid of the dead coming back alive that they would mangle their bodies. They would uh, basically desecrate the bodies, cut off the heads. And that was something that the father was very scared of because the townspeople were so scared of the fact that this was... Actually, I think it might be tuberculosis. Okay. It might be TB just because of the blood factor. Because I think they were finding bodies that had, like, blood on their mouth. But, of course, TB, you're coughing up blood. So people were convinced that it was the dead coming back alive and sucking the blood of living people. So there's that aspect of it. Well, so then the grandfather whisks her away. And lo and behold, the grandfather is a vampire. and turns her into a vampire. And so it follows her through present day. Now, is the grandmother still alive too, or is she? No, the grandmother is not. Okay. So present day is uh, 1984. So this book does a good job about present day, but also presenting her past. So it's, I think it's like one chapter is present day, and the next chapter might be like her past life. In her present day, she is a school board teacher. She runs a school for children, specifically teaching them art. It's not a boarding school because they don't live in the house with her. They just come on a daily basis. Of course, nobody knows that she is a vampire. She's been able to live off the blood of animals And she has a unique way because she doesn't necessarily kill the animals. She has a group of cats that live upstairs. And basically, she somehow has managed to be able to feed off the cats as much as she needs by keeping them alive. So she's formed this good relationship with the cats and their trusting, which, if I'm being honest, I don't see any cat being okay with you sticking your, like, razor teeth in them and them just being like, all right, it's fine. They're cats. Is that how she does it? I wonder, does she, or or do they say? She lures them with like treats. But does she actually bite them or does she? No, she does bite them. Okay. I was wondering, does she use a needle and draws out the blood or does she actually bite them? No, she actually bites them. She has them like sit on their lap. She gives them treats. And so it's kind of like a Pavlovian act where they've gotten so used to knowing that they're going to get a treat that they allow her to bite them. However, her life is upended when she receives a gifted student, Leo, with a troubled home. There's a stalking presence, and you find out that the stalking presence is the god of endings, Chernabog, which I felt like Chernabog was something that I was familiar with. Chernabog is the demon in Fantasia. Okay. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's how I know that, Anne. And then her growing hunger for blood. 
as the book progresses, you find out that she is wanting blood more than usual and she can't control. She used to be fine doing what she's doing, but it's just not working for her anymore. It does talk about her past lives, um, or not past, what well, it talks about her past. Um, and so you get introduced to some really interesting characters like Vano, Iru, Piroshka, and Paul. All these meaningful people that played a part and were meaningful to her in her past because she's approximately 100 years old. Right. Right. And it's interesting because she's going through different time periods. And so there's one of the chapters focusing on her past talks about her dealing with the invasion of the Nazis in France. In that chapter, she decides that the way she's going to help the French people is by killing off the Nazis. <laughs> by sucking up their blood, you know? <laughs> and unfortunately, that doesn't go well because she doesn't really make it a point to get rid of the bodies as good as she should. And also, she's hoarding a lot of the things that she, like the Nazis, are carrying, right? She's hoarding them to help the French people, but there's a horrific misunderstanding. And so it leads to... It leads to heartbreak. And so this is where the overall theme of the book comes in play because Colette has always thought that life is a curse. But towards the end of the book, she wonders whether life really is a curse or if it's a gift. And she just hasn't been taking advantage of the fact that she is immortal. It is extremely interesting. I really liked it. I feel like when I think of like vampire novels, you've got two, maybe three big novels associated with vampires. Dracula. Right. Interview with the vampires. Right. And then Twilight. Right. This is definitely not Twilight. Had it been, I would not have picked it up. Just not my cup of tea. It is definitely not Dracula because she's not a villain. She's complicated. She mostly feeds off of animals, but then during the time of World War II, she decides that she's going to feed off of Nazis, but she does it essentially to help people. So there's no clear... There's no malice. Yes. There seem to be malice in her. Yes, and you can't necessarily... She's... I feel like she's more complicated than most vampire characters, and I appreciate that. Also, she's kept her humanity, which, you know, in Dracula, he, he doesn't really. Right. Keep his in humanity. most of them, they don't keep their humanity. Yeah. So she's a complicated character. And then there's a side story, and it's the side story of her gifted student, Leo, who has a troubled home. His mother is very manipulative. And let's just say she is just not a good mother to him. Within that storyline, you find out that Leo had an older brother named Max who died in a pool. He was he drowned. And that secret has just really upended his relationship with his mom because his mom basically blames him, says it's his fault, and that he could go to the police if he ever told anybody about this. Now, mind you, Leo was... I don't know. He was little. There's nothing he could have done. And his mom was taking a shower. So she was not watching. 
So right. really, it's on her, but she's been playing mind tricks on her kid. This just happens to be the student that Colette is the most attached to. Partly because the mother manipulates Colette into... Well, she ends up bringing Colette into her life, and that's a mess, too. That I don't really want to say too much of it, because it is... <laughs> it's interesting. I really enjoyed this book. Now, what I will say about this book is... I don't know how I feel about the ending. I think the ending to me was very thought-provoking. It was one of those things where I read it and then I had to step back and think about how I felt about the ending. I did like the book a lot. I found it very interesting. Like I said, I think that I appreciate what they did with her character. I appreciate that it's not your typical vampire story. It's complicated. And the ending's complicated, too, which is why I think it's thought-provoking. But I really, really ended up liking this book, even though I'm not quite sure what to make of the ending. I really like this book, and I'm just really interested to know more about um, Jacqueline Holland, what her next book is, because I almost feel like this is kind of like the along the lines of Silent Patient, where I, would, I got so into it that I'm like, ah, oh, I would be interested to see what else like she has. Okay. Not sure if this is her debut novel, but if it's not her debut novel, yeah, I would probably give another of her books a chance and read it. Um, so yeah, that was my book. It was The God of Endings by Jacqueline Holland. Okay. Well, not a lot of books, but a lot of discussion. So we do meet for our lit chat here at the library the second Thursday of the month at one o'clock. So you're all welcome to join us. And with that, we will say goodbye for today. Bye, guys. I'm Bonnie. Oh, sorry, Bonnie. That's okay. <laughs> I'm Bonnie. And I'm PJ. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>